Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether you can negotiate an arms control treaty with someone at the same time you're fighting a proxy war against them. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. I interviewed Samuel Tarrup back in March, and the episode was incredibly popular, deservedly so in my opinion. Sadly, the war in Ukraine seems to be far from over. And last time, I had to cut a lot of questions I had for Sam just because we didn't have time to get to them. So I thought the issue was well worth revisiting. Today, I first ask Sam for an update on the military situation on the ground as of the 21st of July, and then bring up various opinions that he or I expressed back in March to see where we've updated our understanding of things. We then turn to various potential broader lessons we might be able to take away from the situation regarding the right policy response, how worried we should be about escalation spirals in similar situations in future, as well as the viability of future arms control agreements between the US and Russia. Finally, we talk briefly about a possible ceasefire agreement proposal that came up during the negotiations between Russia and Ukraine in late March, a proposal that Sam wanted to highlight as possibly the least unpromising path forward. We've got a few important announcements today, which I'll briefly mention here, then explain in full in the outro to the interview. First off, for the first time since 2020, we are running our user survey. Our user survey is your chance to let us know whether our advice and resources have helped or maybe harmed you in your efforts to do good. You can also just tell us what you've liked or not liked about your experience with 80,000 Hours, uh, whether you've shifted what you're planning to do or not. It's one of the main sources of information we use both to adjust our services and to figure out which of our products are worth continuing or expanding. For instance, your feedback on the show in 2020 was one of the reasons that I shifted to working on podcasting almost full-time. I'll explain more about the user survey in the outro to the episode, but you can reach it now if you'd like by going to 80,000hours.org survey. This year's survey closes soon on the 14th of August, so please do fill it out quickly as we won't have another chance to remind you before then. The second announcement today is that we're currently hiring someone to join our marketing team. This year, we've begun investing quite a bit more heavily in trying to grow our audience, and someone in this role would likely work on promoting this show uh, among all of the other services that 80,000 Hours offers. I'll also have more to say about that position in the outro, but note that applications for the role close on the 23rd of August, and you can find the full job description and see how to apply at 80,000hours.org slash marketer. Okay, without further ado, I again bring you Sam Charup. Today, I'm speaking again with Samuel Charup. Sam is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. His research interests include the foreign policies of Russia and the former Soviet states, as well as US-Russia deterrence, strategic stability, and arms control, uh, topics he has been working on for well over a decade. In 2017, Sam co-authored a book on the Ukraine crisis called Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. In my view, he's been one of the most informed voices on the war in Ukraine, and his first episode on the show back in March, episode 123, got more listeners in its first month than any other episode of the show. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me. Back in March, you were obviously in super high demand and could only spare an hour for us. So we said we would come back later in the year to check what we'd managed to get right and wrong and see if we could learn some extra lessons from how things had played out once we had more information. I guess to open, let's, let's get a quick update on the state of play in Ukraine at the moment. To me, I have the feeling that the general public has lost a decent amount of interest in the war over the last few months. But in the meantime, it seems like Russia has been making incremental gains across the south and east of Ukraine. In the east, it now controls all of Luhansk and most of Donetsk, the two provinces which make up the so-called Donbas region, where there's, uh, I guess, the greatest density of, of Russian speakers. It controls most of Kharkiv region, including up to about 40 kilometers uh, out from Kharkiv city, uh, which was Ukraine's second largest city before the war started. And it also controls most of the regions of Kherson in the south and the majority of Zaporizhia in the southeast. How would you summarize the state of play in the war on the, on, on the ground now? 
Well, I think the big change came, I think, probably just after we spoke at the very end of March, uh, beginning of April, when essentially Russia decided to dramatically shift its war aims, gave up on taking the capital and taking several other major north and northeastern cities and concentrated the majority of its war effort on the Donbass. By that time, it had already taken control over most of the two southern regions that you mentioned, Kherson, which is essentially the first region north of Crimea. So when Russian forces moved north from Crimea, they essentially, Kherson was the first place they ended up, and they met quite little resistance there. And then they went east through Zaporizhia to the first major city where they uh, the fighting got intense, which was Mariupol, technically part of the Donetsk region, but adjacent to Zaporizhia. And the areas in Kharkiv that they still control are, in significant part, lines of communication for their effort in the Donbass. So essentially, the the war effort Mm -hmm. really shifted east. um, But Russia ended up with these two southern regions as well. And we've seen a a fair amount of improvisation, I think, in Russian strategy revolving, uh, involving what to do with those two regions, which is a bit disconcerting, because given that this is the largest stakes effort of you know, the use of force by Russia outside of its borders, arguably since World War II, you'd think they'd want more concrete objectives. But if the objectives are really about the Donbass, as has been stated, at least until recently, then why have these two other regions as well? So the the Russian effort in recent weeks has centered around taking the final population centers in the Donbass macro region, so basically, which are mostly in the Donetsk uh, province, and There are only a few left, but they are extremely well defended because they're the areas relatively close to where the front line was for eight years. And Ukraine had the opportunity to build a lot of defensive positions there. So it's not going to be easy. Uh, In fact, there's a question as to whether Russia is in a position to really finish the job there. In the meantime, it's trying to maintain control of those two regions in the south and keep what it has in Kharkiv to, to supply its effort in the Donbass. And, you know, so I think what we're going to see and we've already started to see is that Ukraine is attempting a counter offensive in the south, potentially to try to retake uh, Kherson region. So far, there have mostly just been sort of strikes behind enemy lines, small efforts at probing, but um, nothing big. That's if we are to believe the advertising, uh, there is a major counteroffensive to come in the next couple of months. And so that's, I think, where we are. Russia's stretched pretty thin. Uh, and so, you know, it's not impossible that the Ukrainians will have some tactical or even operational success with a counteroffensive if they try one. But it's also possible that they won't. We haven't seen much capacity to retake areas that the other side has taken by force. Um, we've seen retreats, but we haven't seen that kind of force on force engagement that really pushes one side back or the other uh, since the very early weeks. Yeah. What do you think Russia's main goal is at this point? Well, you know, the the challenge here is that I think it has evolved. Um, It's at this point, if it were, you know, just about the Donbass region, controlling these other areas doesn't really make any sense. And they seem to be moving towards permanently taking hold of those areas. There's talk about annexation uh, that just made the Western press in the last few days. But really, it's been floating around in um, Russian sources for a while now and plans for sort of political incorporation, the issuing of passports, Russian political managers showing up in these places. And and so there's a question as to what what 
really the broader objective is is it just about taking the donbass is it is it about taking the donbass plus these two other regions um would territory in itself be enough and there you know my my sense is that it wouldn't that russia's has these broader demands about you know ukraine regarding alliance membership and um, possibility of foreign bases on Ukrainian soil and so on that we saw when they were actually negotiating. So I, I would bet that if Russia is satisfied with its territorial acquisitions at some point, it then turns back to the table and puts the same political demands that it had been putting forward um, back in March on the table again. Challenge is that that would then be impossible for the Ukrainian government to agree to, and it might even be impossible today, but certainly if Russia annexes parts of Ukraine's south, it would be very hard for any Ukrainian government to agree to a, a broader political settlement with Russia. Yeah. Do we know how much of each side's original fighting capacity remains operational today? Is, is either side getting close to being worn down and struggling to, to carry on the war? Um, so confident predictions about where the sides are in terms of their capabilities have been usually off the mark in this war. So the short answer is we don't really know. Um, We have some signs that the Russians are reaching, well, that they, first of all, we know that they've depleted a lot of their, for example, precision guided missiles, although they do have many left, of course. They, they are fighting with a peacetime military. They have not conducted a formal broader mobilization and that is causing strain there's sort of a soft mobilization ongoing where, you know, people who've gone through their compulsory service are being offered quite large sums to sign contracts and become, you know, essentially what we would think of as um, enlisted uh, soldiers. Um, they are, you know, offering incentives to a broader swath of society, including even inmates. So th- there's clearly a manpower issue on the Russian side. How critical it is is another story. And we we don't really know. So I think it's clear that Russia has, uh, given that it has so far hasn't decided to uh, move to a broader mobilization and is going to fight with its peacetime forces, there are limits. And there there is a at least some sense that there's a degree of exhaustion setting in and some diminishment of their actual, you know, hardware. Yeah. On the Ukrainian side, they don't have a numbers problem because they have mobilized. Uh, but they do have, you know, you can't just throw people with a week of training into a, um, a war like this. So they've got a training problem. They have an ammunition problem, hmm. an equipment problem, um, which is why they're often talking about getting more weapons from the West. And, you know, there's a there's a question mark as to whether with those problems, you know, how capable a force are they in terms of actual maneuver warfare, combined arms warfare, given the relative weakness of capabilities like their air force. But, you know, clearly they've shown that they can, uh, they've been quite effective in in terms of imposing costs on Russia as they take territory. Um, So not making, making it quite difficult for Russia and the Donbass and using these new systems that they've been given to impose costs on the occupation of the South. So, you know, I think the big question for analysts looking at this now is whether their counteroffensive that's been advertised can succeed. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a, it's there are reasons to think it can and the reasons to think they'll struggle. So um, it's a big, big open question. 
Yeah. Does either country seem interested in negotiating a ceasefire agreement at, at this stage? So uh, the short answer is no. I think that there's a view on both sides that they're not done on the battlefield yet and that they at least want to continue to try to push. Um, in Russia's case, I think it would really want to take some of the major areas remaining in, in the Donbass. And we're talking about, you know, relatively small cities by population, but they're just very well defended. So that might take a while. So and I don't I don't see Russia stopping before that. Yeah. Uh, if it does. And and Ukraine, I think, is going to have a hard time under any circumstances coming to terms with even a de facto acceptance of the Russian control over the South. Yeah. There's uh, their economic interests there at stake. And so I think, you know, there's a view on both sides that they want to keep fighting. Yeah. OK. Looping back to check it on things we, we discussed in March. Has your theory of what is motivating Putin and the Russian state evolved much since we last spoke? I mean, I think the short version is probably not, although I'm trying to recall exactly what I said back then. Uh, I I think that there's um, what has set in is a degree of strategic incoherence that I would not have anticipated, given the stakes, the, the sort of lack of a clearly articulated objective and the way that there's no sort of coherent linkage between the use of force and achieving that political objective seems, I mean, this is sort of more on tactics rather than on, on objectives, broadly speaking. And, uh, but that has been surprising. But I think generally speaking, um, I haven't changed my view on, a, on the big picture. Yeah. I guess in the early days of the war, I felt myself like more drawn towards the realist security focused explanations for, for Putin's decisions, maybe because they're, they're just things that like make more sense to me as someone who's not close to to the issue at all. Having like learned a little bit more about Eastern U- European history uh, since then, I guess I've, I've learned more about just the, the like very long term history of hundreds of years of Russia just kind of consistently being very interested in intervening in other Eastern European countries whenever it kind of got the chance. And maybe it's like general sense of entitlement, perhaps, that these are countries in its sphere of influence or like naturally part of its empire, which is maybe like we consider may, maybe Putin is kind of just telling the truth when he when he says that he's motivated by these cultural factors, like thinking that Ukraine is just a made up country, that the idea that it's a foreign state is a ridiculous notion, uh, all of those kinds of uh, stuff that he says in, in his speeches, at least the speeches back in February. Yeah. Do you have any reaction to that? Sure. So it is certainly the case that the current Russian elite's attitude towards many of his neighbors and particularly Ukraine is a big part of the problem, so to speak and that they have never fully come to grips with their neighbors as fully sovereign, equal states. Um, there's, a, there's a significant imperial hangover in that respect. And, you know, you could make the case that there's some, this is something of an imperial war, I guess, or a post-imperial war. But, um, so first of all, I don't think, I think it's a bit too deterministic to say that just because there were Russian wars against its smaller neighbors in the past, therefore, this is why that's happening. Yeah. And second, on the Putin's sort of dismissive attitude towards Ukraine, and which is certainly present, I think the question is, is that why he went to war, right? I mean, and is Russia more generally willing to fight over that? Yeah. And I think that is where I might diverge from the sort of cultural or imperialistic explanation of Russian behavior. 
I do think that that attitude is present and could be an important sort of secondary factor. But without the sort of primary ones that I think are are the, I mean, realist is probably not the right term, but at least this sort of security driven factors, I wouldn't see the cultural factors in themselves producing this outcome. And I think that's really important when we want to think about Russia more broadly. You know, it might have sort of imperialistic dreams or, um, you know, Putin might fantasize about X, Y, or Z. But the key question is not what he would want in his ideal world, but what he's prepared to, you know, act upon. (laughs) Yeah. And um, in the heat of war, it's obviously easy to be distracted by the rhetoric that we've heard. But uh, that, I think, is the key thing to focus on is, you know, what he's capable of doing and what he's willing to use his capabilities to do. (laughs) Yeah. In March, we were both inclined to say that it would have been in Ukraine's selfish interest to make more painful concessions in order to prevent itself from from being invaded. Do you still feel that way? I mean, in an alternative universe where there could have been a a bad, from Ukraine's perspective, implementation of a, the so-called Minsk agreements, the agreements that were supposed to be implemented following the 2014-2015 sort of first Russian invasion that would have seen the Donbass region reintegrated into Ukraine on Russian terms, essentially. I can't imagine how anyone could think of that as being worse than this war. Hmm. Um, In other words, that seems, even if it would have been bad, it would have just been politically bad. It wouldn't have entailed all this death and destruction. That's not to say that I would guarantee that that would have prevented the war, but if we're choosing in this sort of abstract counterfactual sense between Minsk implementation and the war, I mean, it seems obvious to me which would have been better for Ukraine. If we were talking about closer to the conflict, some something about dealing with this NATO question in a more definitive way, if that had avoided the war, I can't see how, you know, I mean, the war has been pretty catastrophic for Ukraine. I mean, and we should really not lose sight of that for its people, its infrastructure, the future of its economy. I mean, just even the loss of territory. So yeah, it's hard to imagine outcomes worse than this that, you know, that were on the table before. Yeah. Yes. So in April and May, a lot of people I was reading online were expecting Russia to escalate to kind of a full war mobilization and force more troops under the field, rather than continuing to pretend it's just doing this special military operation and it's not at war. But it never actually has done that. And in May, it doesn't seem like it's about to. Is there anything to learn from that experience? So I think what we can take away from that is that there's two things, possibly. Um, One is that Putin is not prepared to completely risk the domestic order that he has presided over because a mobilization would really be a sort of revolution in terms of Russia's domestic situation. I mean, the messaging in major cities to the Russian public is that nothing has changed. And, you know, therefore, like, life goes on as it used to. And that, I think, has been part of the strategy, essentially, to avoid any sort of domestic unrest. And so I think that's part of it. And that is a constraint. If, if you know, I don't think it, Putin would, if things got really bad, he might change his mind. But barring a dramatic shift on the battlefield, I think we see this, you know, that basically it's a self-restraint on how far he's willing to go in terms of 
you know, using using force uh, and the numbers he's prepared to put to it in Ukraine. Um, the second part of it is that th- this is, uh, there's something of a leaving open a window to some return to, you know, something less than a total state of war after this is over and having some sort of economy to, to turn back to. So, I, I, you know, I think in a way it, uh, it points to some ways in which this has not yet become a sort of total war for Russian society <laughs> by a deliberate policy steps of the government. Yeah, because speaking of the economy, back in March, we thought that the sanctions, Western sanctions had really been turned up to 11 almost immediately. And maybe we thought this would have a massive impact on, on the Russian economy and maybe normal life for, for Russians. How has that actually played out? So basically, it is accurate to say we went to 11. It's just that in the meantime, we've been filling in like, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I think in terms of steps on sanctions, like if you look at, you know, compare the the seventh EU sanctions package that is now on the table, it's way less significant than the first. And so I guess by talking about things going to 11 immediately, we skipped a lot of intermediate steps. Um, (laughs) I see. uh, And in a way, the gradation of this, you know, um, it just got a little bit... Um, <laughs> Out of order. <laughs> yes, indeed. So one thing that is certainly the case is that the energy revenues and Russia's takings in something like a billion dollars a day in energy revenue um, have compensated for both the freezing of the cent- central bank assets and some of the broader economic dislocation that the sanctions have caused. There's no question that even in the short term, these measures and combined with the sort of self-sanctioning of, of Western corporates that have exited Russia en masse will have both a short and especially a medium to long-term effect on the Russian economy. So r- the Russian economy will slow between 5 and 10% this year um, by all measures. But over the longer term, you know, Russia's ability to grow will be significantly limited. And so sanctions... You know, I, I guess maybe they were so unprecedented and by that measure extreme that we, you know, we were sort of in uncharted waters then. Um, what has been striking is the overall resilience of the Russian economy and the extent to which basically the short term, any short term shock has been managed by Russia's very competent macroeconomic policymakers. Um, but over the medium to long term, they're going to have you know, there's no way that they can, uh, can, you know, continue to put Band-Aids on this. So there's going to be an impact for sure. And we're seeing it, you know, it's going to start in with specific sectors and areas that where certain technologies are now can't be imported, where, you know, on on certain oil extraction projects like in Sakhalin, they, they were reliant on their Western partners have now exited. They can't now get the the oil out of the water. So it's, uh, this is going to be felt across the economy and it's going, you know, Russia will end up as a much more primitive economy. I guess though, we should have, you know, we should think about countries like Iran where, you know, collapse, although predicted many times has never occurred. Um, so this will be painful for sure. There's a lot of ruin in a nation or it can take a long time for a country to fall apart. Yes, exactly. I guess, yeah, in the first few weeks of the war, I think everyone was taken aback by how kind of blundering Russia's military strategy seemed to be. Is it fair to say that Russia has learned quite a lot from its early mistakes and adopted kind of more realistic goals and a military strategy that might actually be able to to accomplish them? 
So Russia, the military was so wrong-footed by the terrible plan that they were told to execute, essentially, where they were prepared for a three-day war, and uh, it didn't turn out that way, yeah. where there would be no resistance, minimal resistance from the uh, from the adversary military, and this would just be about sort of taking the capital and installing a, a different government. Um, and that obviously was a total catastrophe. And of course, you know, what they have done, you know, arguably since maybe May is fight like they train. And that has had a pretty devastating effect because, you know, the the saying about the Russian military is that it's an artillery military with lots of tanks. And they uh, have used that artillery to sort of devastating effect in the uh, in the Donbass. And yes, so I think basically they have put themselves in a position to take advantage of their um, strengths. Yeah, exactly. Now, they were so wrong footed by that initial mess that they put themselves in that they really, you know, lost a lot of equipment. And the morale factor, I think, has been pretty big in all of this. Because, you know, none, we've learned that soldiers didn't even know that they were going to Ukraine until they were in Ukraine. And the, the narrative around why they were doing this was not really coherent. Um, so that has had an impact, a lasting impact. But yes, I think that they've adopted a more sensible approach. There seemed to be more senior leadership and coordination that... It is no guarantee of success. And we're also learning, I think, some things, and this is still to be examined more deeply once we have a better sense of what's actually going on, about the limits maybe of um, land warfare. And maybe it's harder than we thought. Yeah, it makes sense. Back in March, you thought that Finland and Sweden joining NATO while the war was still ongoing would be risky and potentially quite provocative. And I think you said it was it would likely be a mistake. Yeah. How do you feel about that with the benefit of hindsight? <laughs> Um, well, uh, it's happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> and what has been interesting is that basically it, it very quickly went from, you know, and I talked to Finnish people and um, it went from a sort of shift in public opinion to a shift in policy in like weeks, mm. Uh, mm. you know, after decades of having a different policy. So Finland, really, the, the shift was quite rapid and profound. And, and you know, the president who previously had been the sort of guardian of this policy of non-alignment, really embraced and, and rode the wave of public opinion, I guess. Yeah. Um, what has been interesting is that Russia has been quite specific about what, what would be a problem in this context for Russia. In other words, they focus less on membership per se and more on deployments and infrastructure in Finland and Sweden. And, you know, frankly, this will pose challenges for NATO. It's going to be a whole lot more of a border to defend. Um, and the question about how to defend it is going to be a big one. And whether Finland is going to be prepared to, say, undertake the kind of self-restraint commitments that Norway has as a NATO member, where Norway voluntarily doesn't accept foreign forces permanently stationed on its territory uh, and no nuclear weapons also, and has agreed to, I mean, essentially de facto limits the forces that it positions along the border with Russia in the far north. So they're going to have to be a whole new set of procedures. I guess it's too early to say whether there will be uh, significant risks from this in the future. What I would say is that like, it's happening, uh, and we need to, uh, you know, uh, adjust accordingly. And 
you know, I think one thing that is true is that Russia has been more singularly focused on Ukraine than I would have expected in this context. In other words, they have not sought to sort of, even using non-kinetic means, horizontally escalate, and I think don't want to open a second front right now. So in a way, the war played um, differently than I would have expected or I, I anticipated or I feared, you know, in that by raising general tensions and then you take a step that is sort of potentially threatening in an environment of increased tensions that causes things to happen that potentially wouldn't have happened otherwise. That was what I, the scenario that I was concerned about. In the event, Russia's so bogged down that I think it's not willing it's to not, open not up. Not keen to take on front. more projects. Yeah. 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 Back in March, on March 10th, with Russia doing really quite poorly militarily, I, I was worried about all kinds of different ways that things might possibly get a whole lot worse, including Russia using tactical nuclear weapons, possibly attacking another state like Moldova or, or, or Lithuania. I guess, yeah, Russia accusing Ukraine of using biological weapons as a pretense to use them itself, which it's kind of maybe seemed to be preparing to do. And I guess also the possibility of you know, really damaging cyber attacks uh, going in both directions. Now, I didn't exactly think any of those things was especially more likely to happen than not, but it seems like kind of none of them happened. And, and indeed, I'm not really sure that any of them was, in fact, super close to happening. Uh, is there anything we can learn from, uh, from that experience? Yeah. So I think this entire process, and particularly with the weapons shipments, has been a learning process about the nature of what potentially drives escalation. And I think, you know, in a sense, we've learned that nuclear deterrence works, right? That Russia is um, deterred from attacking NATO countries, even when they do things that end up killing a lot of Russian soldiers. We've learned also that it works the other way around and that we NATO countries are restrained in what they're prepared to do to, you know, in terms of getting involved. Although we are far more involved than anyone would have imagined back in March in terms of the, the quantity and quality of weapons being delivered. I think the narrow takeaway in terms of what might prompt escalation that I would tentatively make from all of this is that essentially so long as Russia is winning from Russia's perspective, uh, their incentives to really dramatically escalate aren't there. So I think that they would have to be in a position where given the the consequences of, of horizontal escalation, particularly to involving NATO, where, you know, of desperation, really, to do that. And they're not. Um, and I think that that gets at the, the way in which, you know, ultimately we're talking about when we say words like deterrence or escalation, we're talking about psychology here and the psychology of the decision makers and where their mindset is, essentially. And I think what we've learned is that there's an extent to which so long as things are broadly going well, from Russia's perspective, they're not going to dramatically yeah. um, uh, rock the boat. <laughs> At least over the that's table. where things are right now. Yeah. I guess one thing I maybe take away from this is that it's in Russia's interest maybe to, and, and indeed like often adversaries' interest to kind of psych you out and like make you think that they might be capable of doing all kinds of other stuff in order to just make you worry and make you cautious. And it, that it's really hard to tell. It's almost impossible to tell if they're doing a good job, whether they are sincere with those threats or whether it is a kind of an, an act, just a menacing act. I guess possibly in, in future I might take things like uh, Russia claiming to have found imaginary bioweapons facilities in Ukraine as a bit more of a matter of theater than, than a presage to, to actually using biological weapons themselves, for example. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that there's a bit of that. But keep in mind that back in March, it was not an entirely clear at all that NATO wasn't going to intervene directly. I mean, we're, it was a relatively new conflict. And so you could interpret a lot of the Russian posturing as trying to signal about that. I see. And, you know, in a way that that kind of deterrence has worked. Uh, if you recall, I mean, it seems like a million years ago, but there was a quite at least serious public discussion about a no-fly zone which has totally dissipated, uh, although sort of similar ideas came back with this idea of using force to uh, take the grain out of Ukrainian ports. In other words, like trying to find a a way of not using the direct um, let's go to war with Russia sentence. um, While still doing so. (laughs) Hiding that under things like no-fly zone or, you know freeing ports. Um, the the thing I would say, though, is that just because this hasn't happened yet doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried about it. And I think, you know, escalation concerns rightly remain, you know, top of mind for certainly here in Washington and I imagine in other NATO capitals, because as much as uh, there is a drive to assist the Ukrainians and to push back on this uh, Russian aggression, there's also a view that we just don't want to have a conflict between Russia and NATO come out of this. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think that does factor into decision making. And that's, you know, <laughs> to the good. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Is there, is there a standout policy change or a change in activities that you might like to see from the US or, or, or NATO countries? Well, so big picture, and we haven't sort of talked about this. I I can't see how the this is a we're heading towards a sort of good outcome right now. As time goes on, and if the war continues at this relative pace, not only do we see Russian moves to making some of its territorial uh, the areas that it is currently under its control more permanent, but you know there's a lot of death and destruction being wrought on Ukraine every day. Yeah, um, and you know I think there's a bit of um, and this, you know, is in part driven by the Ukrainians' openly stated desire to continue the fight and request for more means to do so. So this is not coming from nowhere. But uh, there's a bit of complacency about the the war, <laughs> not not in the sense that people don't think it's a problem, but that there's no urge to bring it to an end soon. And in my view. The longer this goes on, the worse it is for Ukraine and for the interests of uh, the United States and its allies. So, you know, I, I think that we're not necessarily because we should be stopping doing anything we're doing on sanctions or military assistance, but I, I'd like to see a track, even if maybe I don't see it, but I, I have a feeling that it doesn't exist, of channels of communication kept open on the terms of a potential ceasefire. Yeah. Not because we need to have one right now, but because I think we need to be trying to find and identify the space for a potential compromise. And there's just nothing by way of negotiation going on right now. Right. Um, right. And that that does concern me. Of course, if that's a two way street and if the Russians aren't willing to engage um, There's only so much one can do. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to a possible <laughs> path we might imagine towards a ceasefire in a minute. 
But as recently as January 2021, that the New START treaty between the US and Russia was extended for five years. And it's this is a super important treaty that caps how many nuclear weapons each country can have deployed at any, uh, any given point in time. It can't be extended again in 2026. So a new treaty is going to have to be negotiated, or ideally a new treaty would be negotiated to replace it before then. Is there anything we can do to make that more likely? Well, actually, that relates to the previous question, believe it or yeah, not, right. um, because <laughs> there's no way that negotiations can begin so long as fighting is continuing at this level. Yeah. So I think the first step towards getting a, a follow on to New START is to bring this water uh, close. To end the fighting, to create the political space to, to begin talks on this, because, you know, the Biden administration came in and took what, you know, a, an expansive view on, on dialogue with Russia on strategic stability and wanted to include basically to have a strategic stability dialogue that that would be broad and, you know, extend over the course of potentially a couple of years to get to the point where we would know exactly what we wanted and maybe have multiple agreements and so on. That is just not in the cards now. And uh, the time scale is is clearly much more limited to negotiate something new before New Start expires. So you know we're gonna there's gonna have to be a pivot, you know, if and when there is a ceasefire or some sort of settlement to opening up that channel and beginning those talks because it's unlikely that the parties are going to be interested in just m- copy pasting the existing treaty. Yeah, and it's going to be hard, frankly, to get a treaty ratified in the U.S. context. So. This isn't going to be easy, and and beginning talks sooner rather than later would be like, the first step to uh, yeah. to getting us there. So, so we'd like to see we'd like to see the fighting end for all kinds of reasons, and this just adds more urgency to it. That because uh, because we're running out of time to start these negotiations. Yeah, to to that end, in June you wrote an article for Foreign Affairs titled "Ukraine's Best Chance for Peace." In there, you promote a proposal from the peace negotiations that Russia and Ukraine were engaging in back in March in Istanbul. And it's an idea that both sides seemed at least lukewarm to or possibly open to at the time, uh, which you think might be our best shot at ending the war and preventing it from just starting again at some point in the future. The key pieces in the proposal are that, on the one hand, Ukraine agrees not to join NATO and not to allow foreign militaries to operate on its territory. And in return for remaining neutral in this way, Ukraine gets agreements from the US and Europe that they will help it if militarily attacked. And Russia accepts that promise, basically. And Russia would also, uh, in in principle, drop its opposition to Ukraine joining the EU. On On the potentially really hard sticking point of accepting territorial annexation, the proposal doesn't require Ukraine to accept Russia taking its territory, but it also wouldn't apply to the areas that Russia already controls. So it wouldn't require them to leave necessarily either. Why do you think this is a promising starting point for a possible agreement? Well, first of all, because the parties themselves came up with it and said uh, positive, made positive noises about it uh, themselves. So it wasn't a sort of peace plan that I'm, you know, sitting here in D.C. I came up with. So that's the first advantage. I think the second is that it offers a potential vision for what a a settlement could look like that Russia is bought into. So one of the key challenges with any settlement is to ensure that this doesn't happen again, right? Um, And that Ukraine is able to recover without threats to its security that undermine any economic recovery. And yeah, if Russia is determined, no matter what kind of territory is taken, to threaten the rest of Ukraine its long-term economic viability is going to be a serious challenge. So getting Russian buy-in to the settlement, as as counterintuitive as that might seem, because, of course, Russia has committed war crimes, it is the aggressor here, uh, is potentially the the way you get to a settlement that is really produces stability over the long term. 
And I, you know, it seemed to be an innovative approach whereby every, you know, party kind of can claim victory in one way or another. You know, Ukraine gets these security guarantees. Russia gets, you know, this commitment, including international legal commitment to Ukraine being a permanently neutral country. You know, the West gets a green light for um, Ukraine's eventual EU membership. And thus, I think, really a, a fulsome exit of Ukraine from Russia's so-called sphere of influence. So, you know, you could see how everyone might come out of this thinking that they they had gained something. Of course, this was before the war crimes, um, you know, around Kiev and towns like Bucha became public. This was before the rocket attacks on other Ukrainian cities that have occurred in the last few weeks and, and the really brutal fighting in the Donbass. And the parties have, you know, walked away from it to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, it was, I think it was important to just bring it forward because it was this moment when they were actually talking and they did produce something that might be at least incorporated into something uh, that could be used in the future. Yeah. Have there been any sides of interest in this idea since you since you wrote the article or are they just they're not talking to one another? So it's hard to say. Well, I think the negotiations, I mean, they aren't talking and but that's what's on the table. Uh, so if they ever I do see. return to it, it's it, in theory would be where they would pick up from. There have been recent noises about whether the from both the Russian and the Ukrainian side that they you know, would be taking a much more hardline position and the key issue, which the Istanbul communique, the, the proposal that I analyzed, didn't address was the question of territorial control. And it's hard for me to see, and I was alluding to this earlier, how this kind of a settlement could be implemented if Russia annexes big parts of Ukraine. I mean, it can't, it's just not, the Ukrainian government's not going to be in a position to say, okay, well, sign up to this deal after you've taken, you know, another chunk of the, country. of the country. Yeah. So, you know, I think that makes me pessimistic about prospects of any settlement. Yeah. Um, there are other ways wars end, but the settlement path is uh, seeming less and less likely. Yeah. Can you explain how a, how a similar proposal to this one was useful in the case of Belgium in the, in the 19th century? I, I didn't know this history, and I think it's pre- pretty interesting. Yeah. So Belgium was granted independence in a series of treaties signed between 1831 and 1837 by the Concert of Europe. So the major European powers and the Dutch, who were then occupying or essentially ruling uh, Belgium, uh, and the Belgians revolted against them. But basically, the treaty that granted Belgium its independence also enshrined it as a permanently neutral state, and the parties to it fixed their guarantee. So Basically, Belgium's independence, its permanent neutrality, and its security were sort of tied together in this in this treaty, the Treaty of London, at least uh, one of them, the, the key one was known. And this is most remembered today for its failure when, when, of course, Germany invaded Belgium as the first major military operation of World War One, And that was what, of course, brought the UK into the war because of its guarantee to Belgium. But, you know, 75 years of peace that it, that it did have was uh, three times as long as Ukraine had as an independent state. Um, And the model that it provides of sort of geopolitical rivals guaranteeing the security of a neutral state in which they all have stakes and, you know, their security is all affected by it in different ways was, I think, the key analogy. And, you know, Belgium seems kind of like a geopolitical backwater today, but for France and Germany at the time, 
it was this sort of key area through which they invaded each other. Yeah. Um, and uh, because of the, you know, the topography of that part of Europe, it was the the low areas that provided the most clear, the clearest invasion route. It was also quite fertile area, an agricultural, something of an agricultural powerhouse. It was it was important for its ports for the UK as a um, uh, and, and maritime security, given its closeness to the, the channel. So, you know, all the powers had some stake in seeing it uh, belong to none of them, so to speak. Yeah. And that, that, I think, was the analogy and an interesting historical parallel. Yeah, I guess the, the, the main thing that worries me about this proposal is, I suppose, I mean, ultimately, that, that did break down and, uh, and was involved in or implicated in, in the start of World War One. I. I mean, in principle, this would mean Russia signing up to the US providing like security guarantees to Ukraine and saying it would intervene if Ukraine is invaded or it, w- it would help Ukraine. Of course, if, if Russia at some point in the future has a crazy leader or just thinks that that commitment is incredible and does attack Ukraine, then it more strongly implies that the US needs to directly intervene and it could lead to a shooting war between the US and, and Russia. Yeah, do you think that's kind of maybe the, the main drawback here? That is certainly one of the main, I mean, the key sort of strategic risk involved. Um, to take a step back, of course, Germany did invade Belgium in order to invade France, right? It wasn't, uh, this wasn't just a sort of isolated thing that if Britain hadn't responded by invoking its guarantee, that everything uh, would have been the well. whole thing would have gone away. <laughs> mm. Yeah, by that point, you know, the war was um, kind of an inevitability. But um, the key question that you're getting at is whether Western countries, the US and its NATO allies, are going to have to take risks if they want a settlement that it, that produces long-term stability, that ensures that this doesn't happen again. And it might be the case that we do have to take risks. And frankly, the consequences of this war have been so severe that there's a case for taking risks to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the question about that you raise about, you know, if Russia were to do this again, if that agreement were implemented, Russia were to do this again, it would imply that the U.S. would actually come to Ukraine's assistance with its own military. Yes, um, but it also presumably would affect Russian decision making accordingly, right? That Russia would be loath to risk that. Um, yes, of course, if someone crazy comes to power in any country, <laughs> all things go out the window. Um, but this, I think, gets to some of the things that we should be thinking about, about what we're prepared to put on the table to ensure that this ends in a way that creates longer term stability you know, commitments of some kind are likely to be part of the picture. The question is what kind and um, what risks they create. Yeah, yeah. What's the reaction been to your article kind of among among your colleagues in the foreign policy establishment in the US? You know, uh, mixed, of course. Um, yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the models for how this might end and some thought about settlements and ways out are welcome at this point. Um you know, I wasn't proposing this as uh, something that could be taken off the shelf and used right now. And I do see a lot of problems with the proposal. I think why I think it should be it shouldn't be forgotten is that it's the only path I've seen that sort of gets us to, you know, a comprehensive settlement. The other ways out of this are going to be much more potentially short term and short lived, you know, thinking potentially, or they just won't resolve the underlying political issues and will will leave us with significant tensions that could explode again in a couple of years. So, you know, if it's not going to be a settlement, it will be, and, and the war actually does end, it will be something like an armistice or a, a ceasefire that is potentially of, you know, limited duration. 
and doesn't resolve any of the underlying security issues and thus leads to, you know, continuous Russian threats to Ukraine, a continuous crisis of European security, you know, continual economic dislocation from all of this. So even though there are a lot of uh, reasons to be skeptical that we'll ever get there, we should be at least thinking about what the best case could be yeah. um, based on where the parties were, at least at one point. So uh, I think that idea has gotten some good reception. Of course, others uh, have different views. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw, I saw on Twitter, the, I suppose whenever people start talking about making a deal with Putin, many people just find that abhorrent because they hate what he's done so so much that the idea of coming to the negotiating table and conceding anything is just very difficult emotionally. Totally. And that's completely understandable, particularly for Ukrainians. I mean, I think what was striking, I mean, not that I tend to pay attention too much to the to what's said on Twitter, but it was almost as if the, of course, usually the people don't read this, but um, whatever they are criticizing on Twitter. But this wasn't my idea. I was just analyzing something that that actually the Ukrainians came up with. Right. Um, they might have walked away from it, but it's not like I'm thinking up something and imposing it on them. This is this is their proposal. So people have problems with it. You know, so do I. Right. Like, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. But yes, I think more broadly, what you're getting at is a key political dynamic that is very acute in Ukraine. And limits the extent to which Ukrainian government is going to be able to negotiate with the Russians because there's a lot of anger, as you might under, you know, understand, given all the what Russia has wrought. Um, and that anger exists and emotion exists in Western publics as well. So it will be hard to imagine any Western leader ever sitting down with Putin again. And, you know, that complicates diplomacy, to put it mildly. I mean, it's yeah. uh, that's just yeah. a fact. So, you know, I don't know how to fix this problem, but the idea that Russia will be forced into accepting an outcome, you know, through coercive means exclusively. That doesn't mean some element of coercion won't be part of the picture, but that it will be compelled to accept an outcome without getting anything seems low probability. So we got to think about ones that are uh, more within the realm of the probable, even if they are unsatisfactory and unsavory. Totally. Yeah, I know, I know you've got to run in a minute, but I guess the final question is just, I mean, no, no one would wish for this, but I guess to, to some extent, as an expert on Russia and Ukraine, this is kind of your moment as possibly, you know, a year when you might be able to have more, more impact or do more to help people than you might at any, other, at any other time in your career. Yeah. How are you hoping that your work might be able to contribute to, a, to among the least bad outcomes that, that's imaginable here? Well, um, I guess to a certain extent, you know, some, some of my work, which is can be quite in the weeds on um, researching and now also researching this war and doing the kind of detail that probably would be boring for our listeners. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> it might not have the kind of direct impact that you're referring to, but what, I, what I've seen is my role at least, and doing this a lot on, on sort of my own time, is trying to think about the ways that this can end without consequences with minimal consequences for particularly Ukraine, but also the rest of the world and trying to put out ideas. I mean, if think tanks are there for anything, they're at least, you know, they should be there to put new ideas into the sort of public discussion Mm -hmm. and to foster debate. And so at this point, you know, I sort of see (laughs) to a certain extent as my duty to keep that, keep that up. And uh, I hope to be able to continue to do it at least, um, although I wouldn't, you know, want this kind of, uh, obviously it's this sort of a, the spotlight is not something I would wish because <laughs> yeah. of the consequences of it, but I do feel something of an obligation to try to push for better outcomes, given that I have the you know more of a 
microphone than I would have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to see what the what the path out of this is, but we we still have to dare to dream. So <laughs> keep, keep up the good work. Hopefully, hopefully at some point yeah. uh, a path out will will become visible. Uh, my, my guest today has been uh, Sam Cherub. Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'll uh, now go into a bit more detail about our user survey and that new marketing role, which I teased you with in the intro. As I mentioned, we are currently running our user survey, which is one of the main ways we figure out what among all of the things that 80,000 Hours does are most helpful, which are potentially not that useful to you and which might even be harmful. You can find it at 80,000hours.org survey. Of course, the team here has to be constantly thinking about what to write next, what roles to hire for, which podcast episodes to produce next, and so on. And your input can potentially be super helpful with all of that. We have plenty of things going on here at 80,000 Hours, including this show, our other show, 80K After Hours, our job board, our various different kinds of research articles, our one-on-one advising, and our marketing outreach efforts uh, to reach new folks, uh, among, among other projects. So naturally, prioritization can be a bit of a challenge, and there's a lot of topics you might be able to give us advice on. Normally, we do the user survey once a year, but we skipped it in 2021 so that we could just stay focused on delivering our projects which I think was the right call, but it means that we're particularly keen to know how things have shifted over the last two years. If you filled out the user survey before, it's pretty likely that your plans and opinions are going to have changed over the last two years. So if you're open to filling it out again, we would really appreciate that. We're equally keen to hear how you feel about 80,000 hours, if the impact that we've had on you you think is positive or neutral or negative, and if you've changed your plans for how you expect to do good, as well as if interacting with 80,000 hours has made no difference to your plans at all. On average, people take about 25 minutes to fill out the user survey. If you were moving fast or had fairly simple things to say, you could probably get through it in 10 or 15 minutes. On the other hand, if you're someone with a complex story and subtle things you want to communicate to us, that would take a bit longer. However much you write, I can promise you that every entry gets read all the way through by multiple people on our end. Again, you can find it at 80,000hours.org survey. Second, we're hiring someone to join our marketing team to help more people find out about this show, as well as all the other services that 80,000 Hours has to offer. From the start of this year, we've begun investing much more heavily in getting the word out about how we can help folks have more impact, as reaching more people is a pretty obvious and natural way that we can hopefully do more good as an organization. Since then, we've found a few things that we think are working, and so we want to try to do more of them. But to make that happen, we need more people on the marketing team than just Bella Forrestal. Someone who'd be right for this role would be pretty excited about effective altruism or 80,000 hours mission. They might have a background in marketing, especially digital or influencer marketing, but our experience is that that's not necessarily essential, and we want to hear from people without jobs like that on their CV as well. Keep in mind, this isn't exactly a traditional marketing position, since we are, after all, a nonprofit, and in fact, we're not selling anything for money at all. So we'd love you to apply, even if you aren't otherwise thinking of yourself as a professional marketer per se. The role is a full-time one. Ideally, it would be done in person at our office in London. And it would pay around £60,000, assuming you had little or no prior experience, but more than that if you did. If that piques your interest at all, you can find out plenty more about that role at 80,000hours.org slash marketer. And keep in mind, applications for that one will close on the 23rd of August. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ben Cordell and Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together this week, as every week, by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.